Amen. We're going to read from God's precious Word. If you have your Bible, you could turn with me to the New Testament Scriptures and to 1 John, the first epistle of John and the chapter 4. And we're going to read a portion from this chapter commencing at the seventh verse. 1 John and the chapter 4 and the verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And every one that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him, and he in us, because he hath given us of his Spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed that the love that God hath to us God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. Amen. We land there at the end of the chapter, and may the Lord add his own blessing to this public reading from his own precious and infallible word. Amen. Well, it's good to be with you here again in Hillsborough, and can I just take this opportunity uh, before I preach uh, to thank the congregation here uh, for all of your encouragement, uh, your prayers, uh, and your practical support uh, since I've been here in June. It has been a real source of encouragement and a real source of blessing to me. So 
Um, I just thought I would thank you, and it's my prayer for each and every one of you that you'll have a very blessed and a very uh, peaceful Christmas, and that we'll know the Lord's blessing uh, at this time of the year. Uh, we'll open God's Word once again at that portion in 1 John chapter 4. And with God's Word open, we'll bow in prayer, and we'll seek His face and His blessing as we consider His Word. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do approach Thee now in our Saviour's holy and precious name. And Lord, we seek Thy presence now as Thy Word is preached. Father, we desire the power of the Holy Spirit in the preaching of the Word, in the receiving of the Word. Lord, that Thy Word would be a blessing to each and every one of our souls. Lord, that our minds, our affections, Lord, they would be led to Christ. They would be drawn heavenward as we consider his person and consider his work. Heavenly Father, do bless now. We pray in our Savior's holy and his precious name. Amen. Amen. Christmas is a time when we tend to put in a special effort. We make a special effort to buy gifts and to show our family and friends how much we care about them. We make a special effort to get together with family and friends that we wouldn't normally make at any other time of the year. Even entire communities come together and they make special efforts to perhaps engage in acts of kindness or works of charity or whatever it might be. It is a time of special effort. Even in the church, a special effort is made with the different things which happen on the church calendar and uh, through church programs, there are special services. There are special carol singing services. We hold parties for the children uh, to enjoy. And in most churches, there is a Christmas dinner, which gives us the opportunity to fellowship one with the other. And there are many other activities that the church engages in also. However, among the many activities we engage in, whether it be inside the church or outside the church, we mustn't forget that Christmas time presents us with a wonderful opportunity to engage in evangelism. People's hearts tend to be more open to the message of the gospel at Christmas, and there seems to be more opportunity to speak to people about the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, we mustn't forget that one of the main reasons the church exists on this earth is for evangelism. And that means that nothing, even at Christmas time, must frustrate our efforts to engage in evangelism. Now, at this stage, I want to, um, I suppose, enter a disclaimer into my thoughts and say that I'm not against any of the things I've mentioned above. I'm not here to bash them. These are things that I enjoy. These are things that I have engaged in myself. And I very much look forward to Christmas on the church calendar. But my point still stands. Evangelism or evangelistic efforts must never be overshadowed by anything in the calendar, even our church social programs. Social programs in and of themselves, they may lead to evangelism, but they are not evangelism. We must make a distinction between the two. And this leads us to ask then, what is evangelism? And we have to go to the scriptures to answer this question. And then John uh, in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 14, I think we have a basic yet an effective picture of what evangelism looks like. 
And it's with these thoughts in mind, and 1 John 4 and 14 is my text for this morning, that I want you to consider this topic with me of a pattern for evangelism, a pattern for evangelism. I want you to see firstly the particulars of evangelism. Look at what our text says. It says there that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And in this we see a divine endeavor, for our text says the Father sent the Son. And friends, herein is the origin of the Christmas message. Herein is the origin of the message of the gospel. Herein is why we celebrate Christmas. It's because the Father sent the Son. Now that phrase signifies that the plan of salvation has a divine origin. The plan of salvation, it originated in the mind of God. And from this flowed this divine action of the Father sending the Son to be the Savior of the world. And this is an act that we celebrate and rejoice in. And it's an act that we celebrate and rejoice in, especially at Christmas time. And when we think of the shepherds abiding in the field and the angels appearing unto them, when we think of the wise men following a star in order to worship the Lord, when we ponder Herod's evil decree to have the firstborn killed, when we consider Mary and Joseph traveling to Bethlehem, it all culminates in one thing, friends, the baby in the manger. The Lord Jesus Christ born into this world. This miracle of the incarnation, the birth of Christ, It is the wonder of wonders for mankind. This plan of salvation, it could have had no other origin but a divine origin. It couldn't have been conceived in the minds of any created intelligence, whether it be men or angels. Friends, philosophers throughout the years, they have tried to come up with answers to the human condition. They have tried to come up with solutions to the human condition, but that has proven fruitless. Yet, friends, the mystery has been solved by God's great plan. It has been solved by divine endeavor. Friends, men couldn't have come up with such a solution as this. No more speculation is needed when it comes to the condition of man, the condition of man's heart, to the sin problem. If you, look about, if you look back at 1 John 4 and 9, it says there, And this was manifested the love of God towards us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. Now, Scripture, in Scripture, Christ is often referred to as the Son of Man. In Luke 19 and 10, he refers to himself this way. It says there, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And this title emphasizes the humanity of Christ. But in Scripture, he is also referred to as the Son of God. In 1 John 5 and 20, it says, And we know that the Son of God is come. And this title, or this title emphasizes the deity of Christ. It emphasizes the fact that he is God. Now we are aware of the dual nature of Christ. He is fully God and he is fully man. He has two distinct natures in the one person. Yet in our text, neither of these terms are used. We are presented with this single term, Son. The Father sent the Son. And the emphasis here 
is on the fact that he is the Son of God. And in Scripture, sonship is related predominantly to being in submission. So the idea presented here is that Christ was obedient to his Father. He was obedient to his Father very especially in being sent into the world. Now in John 8 and 44, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he was engaging with the Pharisees, he said this to them, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. Now the Jewish religious leaders, they referred to themselves as the sons of Abraham. And Christ actually rebukes them. He rebukes their notions and he reminds them. He says, you are the sons of Satan. You do the works of Satan. You are in submission to Satan. And therefore, you are his children. You are not Abraham's children. You don't do the works of Abraham. And then we consider and we conclude that Christ is referred to in our text as son because he is in total submission to the Father. And he was in total submission to the Father when he came into this world, when he was born in a manger. And in this context, we also see the word sent. And that submission to his Father is signified by the word sent. And it really means uh, to send off. And the idea of that word is to dispatch. So Christ was dispatched by his Father. He was dispatched by his Father with a designated goal and a designated purpose. He came into this world for a reason. And therefore, the Father sent the Son into this world with a goal in mind and with a mission in mind. And this leads us to consider concerning the particulars of evangelism that there is a divine effect because we see in our text what this designated goal was. We see in our text why Christ was sent into the world. We see in our text why we read in the Scriptures of the baby in the manger. It was that He was to be the Savior of the world. This was the end in view at the birth of Christ. This is why Christ was sent into the world. He was sent into the world in order that He might be the Savior of the world. That title, Savior, is an appropriate title for Christ. In Luke 2 and 11, we read, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this title is used to describe the nature of His work. He is a Savior. And this reveals that us as mankind, us as human beings, we need to be saved from something. And that is sin. What do we read in Romans 3 and 23? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Friends, our sin has totally alienated, from us, from a, alienated us from a holy God. We are totally helpless in our sin. And we will one day face the wrath of God because of our sin if we are not in Christ. I said earlier that mankind could never have come up with a solution to the sin problem. And therefore, when we say that Jesus is Savior, we are emphasizing that He saves us from the wrath of God. This was the designated purpose for Christ to come into the world. Many people say that He came to be an example. Other false religions say that He came merely to be a prophet. Others say that He came 
to reveal God to us. And there is truth in that. But they say that his death on the cross was unfortunate. That they were unfortunate circumstances. But friends, he came to this world. He was born into this world in order that he might go to the cross. And that he might be a savior to all types of people from every nation in this world. And this was realized when he went to the cross. And he died in place of sinners in order that they might have their sins forgiven. His work actually resulted in salvation. And we can see the fruits of that this morning in God's house. Look how many people are here. How many people are saved. We are living fruits of his work. And I want to ask you this morning, if you're here, are you a beneficiary of this work of Christ? Are you a beneficiary of the Father sending the Son? Have you trusted Christ for the forgiveness of sins? What does the birth of Christ mean to you? What does Christmas mean to you? Is it just a time for sentiment? Is it just a time where you enjoy carol singing? Is it just a time where you enjoy the nativity scenes, but you never really think, what did it mean that Christ was born? Friends, it meant that you could be saved from your sin. And I implore you this morning to trust Christ for salvation. A great preacher once said that there's nothing as nice and there's nothing as sentimental as a little baby in the manger. But he also said that the next time Christ comes into this world, he will not be coming as a baby in the manger. He will be coming as a judge. And he will pour out his wrath upon those whose sins are not forgiven. Friends, trust Christ. Trust him for salvation, lest one day you face the wrath of God and perish for your sins for all eternity. These are the particulars of evangelism, but I want you to see secondly with me the prelude to evangelism, because our text implies that before we testify of this message that the Father sent the Son, something has to happen beforehand. And we see what that is in our text that says, and we have seen. Now this seeing is in relation to the truth that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And it is more than just physical sight. I want you to see concerning this sight that it is a revealing sight. Because that word seen, it could also be translated as to behold. And the sense of the word is to gaze admiringly upon something which has a profound impact on us and even changes uh, our minds, our moral, our mental faculties. And it is written in a way which denotes that it is a past action. And so what John is referring to here, he is referring to a past event which has had a great impact on us as God's people. It is an event which has had a changing impact on us. And when John uses that word seen, he is referencing a time in a believer's experience when the truths of the gospel had a profound impact on them, had a life-changing impact on them. This was a time, believer in Christ, when all hardness, when all blindness, when all apathy, even hatred for the gospel of Christ was gone. This was a time when you beheld Christ by faith, when you beheld his person, when you beheld his work with utter astonishment. 
in simple terms. This was the day when you realized that you were condemned. This was the day in your life when you realized that Jesus Christ was the only solution. He was the only Savior. And you saw infinite value on his death on the cross. Because that wasn't always the experience for us as sinners. There were times when we scoffed at the cross of Christ. There were times when we rejected Christ. There was a time in our life when Christ meant very little to us. Yet there was that one single day when that all changed. This was the day that we experienced the new birth. And this is what John is referring to here when he says, and we have seen. Now, as I pondered that word seen and the fact that it references a time when we gazed admiringly by faith upon Christ, I was struck by the fact that as believers, this isn't always the case. Over time, our awe for the person of Christ can diminish. This can be for several reasons. This can be because of our sin. It can be because of trials. It can be because of other circumstances, whatever it is. Believer, there was a time in your life when your eyes were opened and you gazed upon the person and the work of Christ. There was a time in your life you were saved. And do you remember that day you got saved? The joy that was in your heart. The day that you got saved when you would have went onto the streets and you would have told anybody that you were a Christian. And you would have told anybody boldly that they needed to be saved. That first day you got saved and your zeal was fresh. And you were in awe of the person and work of Christ. I want to ask you today, is that still the case? Do you still by faith gaze upon him with the same awe and the same wonder? Do you still have the zeal for him that you had years ago? The hymn writer asked the question, where is the blessedness I knew when first I saw the Lord? Christian, it's easy and possible for us to grow grow cold at heart. It's easy for our zeal to wax cold. It's easy for us to become stale. It's easy for us to open the pages of Scripture and to read the truths of God and to just be dull to these truths. That can happen in the Christian life. Friends, we must never grow cold to the glory and the wonder of Christ's person. We must never grow cold to the glory and wonder of his work because this is the ultimate source of joy and contentment in the Christian life. What did Christ say? He said that he wanted our joy to be full. And if you have grown cold to the things of God, perhaps you need to pray the prayer of David In Psalm 51 and 12, when he said, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. And this sight that John speaks of, it was not just a revealing sight, but it was a renewing sight. For that word seen also refers to a past event which has ongoing results and an ongoing process which will one day be completed. And this is the impact that seeing Christ by faith has upon the individual. Friends, when you look to Christ by faith, when you gaze upon Him and trust Him by faith, you will be changed forever. 2 Corinthians 5 and 17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. 
and in the work that Christ has done in our hearts in the new birth, the old man has been dealt a mortal blow. His destruction is certain. But friends, the old man is not yet dead. There is still a link between the old man and the new man which remains. And the Christian life is a life of struggle with sin. Sin no longer has dominion over us because Christ overcame that. Yet sin is still in us. Galatians 5 and 17 says, For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And therefore, a saving sight of Christ is a renewing sight. It is an ongoing process. It involves our minds being renewed by the Holy Spirit, primarily through the Word of God and prayer. And from this renewed mind comes a desire to obey the will of God. And this is manifest in how we live our lives. It results in a greater degree of Christ-likeness. And when does this reach its apex? It reaches its apex the day we put off this body of sin and are conformed to the perfect image of Christ. And believer, this renewing, it can really be a grueling process. As you wrestle with the old man, you will often find yourself succumbing to sin and succumbing to the old man, and this results in despair. However, this is where the revealing and the renewing come in, because during these failures in your life, you can always gaze admiringly upon the person and the work of Christ afresh. I'm not saying that you can lose your salvation, but what I'm saying is this, you can still sin. And therefore, your Christian life should be marked by ongoing repentance from sin. With your failure, with your sin, you can run and you can gaze upon Christ time and time again with that realization that He has paid the price for my sin. Oh, the devil will tell you that you're not saved. He will torture you in your mind because you have failed God. Friends, you can say to the devil today, Christ has died, and He has paid the price. He has shed His blood, and He has satisfied God. My sins are forgiven. It doesn't matter what the devil says. And at this time, friends, of all times in the year, at this time of Christmas, may we get back to Christ. And we will not be in despair if we gaze admiringly upon him and say, my sins are forgiven. He came into this world and he paid the price for my sins. The prelude to evangelism involves being saved. It involves experiencing a work of saving grace in our lives. But I want you to see finally the proceedings of evangelism because We've considered the message of evangelism in that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And we've considered the people who engage in this work, people who are born again, people who by faith have seen the glory and the wonder of Christ's person and work. But our text also reveals what this work of evangelism entails. It says, and do testify. And this is a direct result of seeing because one who sees Christ by faith, who embraces him by faith, will testify of him. I want you to see that it is an accrediting testimony, 
Now that word testify, it means, it can also mean to bear witness. And it has been translated in Acts 16 and 2 as reported. And so the sense of this word testify is to offer first-hand authentication in favor of someone. So what does our testifying as God's people consist of? It consists of reporting of the saving power of Christ, which we have experienced for ourselves. Now, we are not like the apostles and many in the early church who directly witnessed the miracles of Christ. We are not those who sat down with him physically, who touched him. We are not like uh, the wise men who beheld the baby in the manger. We are not like those people. But friends, the sum of our report is this. It's that Christ saves and Christ transforms. And how do we know? We know because he's done it in our personal lives. The sum of our report is that the word of God is true when it says that Christ can deliver from the bondage of sin and that Christ's Spirit can totally transform the life of an individual, it is that we attest to the truth of God's Word when it comes to salvation and every matter of faith and practice. And friends, we we don't certify to the saving power of Christ by our words only. We certify the saving power of Christ by how we live our lives. When you tell someone that Christ has the power to save from the damning consequences of sin and that he has the power to transform the life of an individual, what will people do? People will look for evidence and they will look specifically to you for evidence. Christian, you can't tell people that Christ saves. You can't tell people that Christ transforms and not live a life which testifies to this power. If you do, then that is the height of hypocrisy. That does not authenticate your report concerning Christ. If you say that you are a Christian, if you say that you have been transformed by the power of Christ, and you don't live a holy life, you don't exhibit Christ-likeness, then you don't help the testimony of Christ. You damage the testimony of Christ. What you say what you do, how you treat people in the context of work, school, university, home, or any context, it will determine what people think of Christ and his work. If you say Christ saves and Christ transforms, yet you're not changed, people will not think much of Christ. They will not think much of him. And let me ask you today, friends, are you a testimony to the gospel of Christ? In your home, in your community, in your work, wherever it is, are you a testimony to the gospel of Christ? Or are you a hypocrite? When people look at you, do they say, well, they go to church now, but they haven't really changed. They still treat people the same way. They still talk the same way. They still do the things that they used to do. What is it? Matthew 5 and 16 says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Believer in Christ, may your life and may my life testify to this message that we preach. When we tell the world that Christ saves and Christ transforms, 
may they look at us and say, well, he's right or she's right because they're totally changed. It's not only an accrediting testimony, it's an active testimony. And friends, this is where everything comes together. This is where evangelism finds its realization. It is when those of us who have been transformed and saved by the power of the gospel take this message and present it to others. Now, there are several different Greek words translated as preach in the New Testament. And some of them are translated as to herald forth or to announce good news, uh, to talk or to give a detailed account. And so that signifies that there are many ways that we can preach this message that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. It can be on a pulpit. It can even be through one-to-one conversation with a friend. This means that each and every person in this service who is saved can engage in this work of evangelism. But the main point is that preaching the message of Christ crucified is the substance of our evangelism. This is the method that God has ordained. This is the method that God has blessed throughout the ages and been pleased to use. It is the method method that God has specifically used throughout history. Now we have to remember God is sovereign and God can work in many ways but it is by preaching that he has blessed the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1 and 21 says, For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And this must be our primary concern. It must be our primary concern to cry, Behold the Lamb. Behold the one who came to be the Savior of the world. Nothing must overshadow this. And as I conclude this message, I know that it is an old cliche that we hear each and every year. We probably hear every Christmas. However, it is an important one nonetheless. We must always remember the reason for the season. As we contemplate the season we are in, we must never lose sight of the importance of it. We must never lose sight of the importance of the message that Christ came. Friends, may God give us the grace to never lose sight of the fact that during Christmas our primary concern ought to be to testify what we have seen, that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. May we all testify during this season to the fact that the one who was born was born to save sinners. And may God bless his word to all of our hearts for his glory. Amen.